Welcome, EnDisc fellows. I'm Crystal Barrow. I'm an undergraduate fellow. Uh, with me today for this podcast is Tom Mancinelli. A little bit about our guest before we begin. He's the current National Security Advisor for Senator Coons of Delaware. Uh, and he works with the Senator on the Foreign Relations Committee and Appropriations Subcommittee funding specifically foreign assistance. Uh, Tom has helped Senator Coons craft legislation to create the new U.S. International Development Finance Agency. He has addressed the root causes of terrorism, invested in strategic competition with China, and increased electricity access in Africa and oversee the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, prior to beginning in this position in 2015, from 2012 to 2014, Tom was Chief of Staff in the State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs. And earlier, he also worked for the Deputy Secretary of State, Thomas R. Nides, and in the National Security Division of the Office of Management and Budget. Prior to serving in federal government, Tom served his country, deploying twice to Iraq's Anbar province as a U.S. Marine. He also has a master's degree from Georgetown School of Foreign Service and a bachelor's from the United States Naval Academy, where he was awarded the Harry S. Truman Scholarship. Tom is a recipient of numerous awards, including 2016 Ike Skelton Award for Public Service Leadership. He is also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project. He lives with his wife, Sarah, son, George, and his daughter, Ruth, in Washington, D.C. Tom, thank you for coming out and talking with us today. Thanks, Chris. Great to be on with you and look forward to uh, some great questions and a great conversation. That sounds great. Um, before we begin, I'd also like to emphasize to our audience the views that Tom is going to say today are entirely his own. They do not represent the views of Senator Coons or the United States government in any way. Tom, is that correct? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Of course, we don't want to get anybody in trouble here, do we? No, let's try to avoid that. All right, Tom. So to start, I would like to talk about the Senate's role in foreign policy. Could you give us some background information? What's a normal day in the office look like for someone in your position? Sure. Well, it's important to remember that in our system, um, the, the founders, the authors of our constitution um, wanted to make sure there was a separation of powers between uh, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. And particularly when it comes to foreign policy, uh, there's a, there are authorities in the constitution that are vested in the executive branch and authorities in the legislative branch. And I work for uh, a senator who is on uh, the Foreign Relations Committee, which has some specific um, responsibilities as delineated in, in the constitution. Um, and then of course, Congress has the power of the purse. Um, so my primary responsibilities, as you said in my bio, are to support Senator Coons's work on the Foreign Relations Committee um, that provides advice, advice and consent on all um, executive branch nominees to be ambassadors to serve in other countries and to lead the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development here in, in Washington. Um, we also have decision-making um, authority over, the, over whether or not we choose to fund certain foreign assistance programs. Do we want to, for example, um, give humanitarian assistance to refugees coming out of Ukraine? Do we want to um, give money to programs to support uh, democratic programs worldwide that help countries um, form more free or more open societies? So these are some of the things I work on for the Senate uh, and for the Senator. 
Um, you know, there is no, no typical day. There's no normal day. My schedule is very much dictated by the Senator's schedule. So if the Senator has, um, a briefing on, um, Iran, we'll attend a brief, I'll attend a briefing with him on Iran and I'll write a, usually like a little prep memo for him, um, the night before in which I recommend questions that he might ask. Um, if the Senator is going to meet with a visiting foreign minister or visiting, you know, head of state. Um, I will prepare a memo for the senator for that and, and sit in the room and listen to the conversation and provide any uh, advice or guidance to the senator as, as he engages in, in those types of duties. Um, one of the other things that the senator does is you know, he writes bills that he wants to see come into law. And some of those you alluded to again in my bio, but um, bills where we can talk about how we can uh, sharpen or modernize the tools the United States government uses to promote um, development in um, underdeveloped parts of the world like Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or South Asia. And um, I've been privileged to work with the Senator on drafting those bills and then marshalling support for them through the legislative process. Um, so that's a major part of my job. And um, it's, it's, it's actually pretty exciting. It's definitely a front row seat to our democracy. Um, and I'm happy to answer any more questions you have about that. Um, Great. Um, do most senators have a national security advisor or just ones involved in certain committees? Every senator can decide how he or she sets up um, his or her office. And, you know, most senators, I think, find it useful to have somebody who is advising them on defense uh, or national security issues. So that would include things like, um, you know, when we have the, the National Defense Authorization Act, a big bill that you know, provides, you know, over $700 billion in defense equipment uh, or in defense authorization to the government. Usually the senators want someone who's following that bill and advising, um, advising them on how to vote on that. Same thing with, you know, foreign policy related nominations. I would say that most senators who are on the Foreign Relations Committee or the Armed Services Committee or the Intelligence Committee definitely have a national security advisor, but each senator can pick or, can pick and choose you know, how much time specifically they wanted to, to devote to foreign affairs. And they can also um, think about how they want to structure their staff to make sure they have the information they need uh, to make informed and effective decisions about how they intend to vote um, on different, different uh, matters that come before the Senate floor. All right, so just to make sure I'm following, it's entirely up to the Senator how to run his office. Yes, I, I would say that. But, you know, as someone who's been here on Capitol Hill for seven years, um, you know, I, I feel like I've worked with almost every other office in the Senate and I tend to have a counterpart in every other office. Now, that person may also have additional duties um, that deal with homeland security or, you know, some more trade or some other more domestically focused piece of the senator's portfolio. But it would behoove senators to have someone who they can look to and say, if I have a question related to defense or diplomacy or the Iran nuclear deal or what's happening in Ukraine, I have a, a staff point of contact, a staff lead on those issues. All right. Um, moving on to the Senate as a whole beyond just your individual office, some commentators in recent years have asserted that executive power is growing in all spheres of government, but especially in foreign affairs, with presidents having less and less oversight as time goes on. Do you agree with this sentiment? 
I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's an important point. And as I said, the con the constitution is an invitation to struggle between executive and legislative branch. And I would argue that since September um, 11th of 2001, there has been um, a steady flow of power to the executive away from the legislative branch. Uh, we could talk about the causes for that. I think that the authorization for the use of military force that the Congress approved nearly unanimously in 2001 uh, really swung the pendulum in favor of the executive. And since then, the Congress has been looking to find ways uh, to claw back its, its authority. Um, I think the Congress is most relevant in with regards to foreign affairs um, when we act with strong bipartisan uh, margins and when we um, send signals of support for certain things to check you know, sort of unusual actions by the executive. So when I think members of both parties felt like President, former President Donald Trump wasn't hard enough on, on Russia or was sort of turning a blind eye to some of the ways in which Russia was acting antithetical to U.S. interests, we passed bills that imposed sanctions on Russia um, that, that became law through veto-proof margins. Um, we passed bills and, and resolutions, for example, that expressed support for NATO at a time when the former president um, was reluctant to express his support for Article 5 and some of the ways in which um, NATO's security alliance operates. So uh, I think that generally, yes, um, power has flown to the executive, or, but I think that there are ways that in which the Congress is considering um, clawing back some of the authority that, that it's vested um, in, in the Constitution. All right. Um, last question about the Senate, and then we can move on to some more meaty current event questions. Uh, what role do you see the Senate playing in dictating foreign policy in an increasingly globalized world, especially in one where rapid response is needed? And no offense to the United States Senate, it is not the most rapid of bodies. I think that's. I think that um, the Senate and the Congress have an important role to play. Um, I think to signal a couple of things, to signal that, you know, we, despite our political differences on any number of issues here at home, uh, that we're still united when it comes to a certain set of principles. And that is that uh, the United States has played a stabilizing role uh, in the world for um, really the last 70 years since, since the end of World War II um, by creating a set of international institutions that have allowed countries to you know, rise from the um, aftermath of World War II or to economically develop in such a way that you know, has overall increased, increased prosperity for a great number of people. Now, there are exceptions, and uh, you know, there's been the Vietnam War, there's been the Iraq War, there have been you know, challenges to that, but broadly, over the last 70 years, the, the system that we created is a system that has helped the planet um, and it's also, frankly, you know, been, been pretty good for the American people and pretty good for the United States. So I think what you'll see is continued bipartisan support for um, actions that, you know, um, honor the alliances that we've made, the, the alliances and partnerships that we've made through NATO, through our partners in uh, East Asia, particularly um, Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, honor those partnerships and uh, find ways that we can continue to deepen and enhance them at a time when there's a competing model of development that exists in the world. There's, there's a more authoritarian uh, surveillance model that does not in any way value um, open debate or individual freedom. And I think you're seeing that principally in, in China and Russia right now, 
um, some other states, perhaps Iran, North Korea. Um, but what we in Congress, I think, have an agreement on across Democrats and Republicans is that we want to put the best um, example of America forward. And we want to try to attract countries um, and inspire countries with our model of free and open societies and show that our model of governance can meet the challenges facing the world today, whether it's the COVID-19 pandemic, um, creating economic growth in an increasingly competitive world, um, nuclear nonproliferation, you name it. Um, democracies tend to be the, the system of government that are best able to respond to citizens' needs in, in today's world. Thank you for that answer. And I can think of no better way to move on from an answer that emphasizes how amazing the international system has been for the world than to start talking about some current events that are threatening the stability of that system. Um, namely, let's start off with the elephant in the room, the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. What do you think Putin's endgame in Ukraine is? And do you think he can still achieve that goal? Like, what would be the Russian victory conditions versus the Ukrainian victory conditions? Yeah, uh, really good question. Um, and I welcome the chance to talk about the, the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Um, so I think what Putin's endgame is, is essentially to have um, a government or a state in Ukraine, just like he has in Belarus. In Belarus, you know, there's uh, a strong man, Alexander Lukashenko, who is, is basically in power um, and nominally in charge of the Belarusian state, um, but a, a, a real pliant figure and who just sort of does whatever Putin says. Um, there was recently an election in, in Belarus and it was widely condemned as completely fraudulent. Um, and Lukashenko maintained power despite protests in the street. Um, and Belarus is essentially a, you know, almost a, a proxy state of the, of, of controlled by the Kremlin. Um, I think what, what, what Putin would ideally want in Ukraine is a government in Kyiv uh, that certainly does not seek NATO membership, that certainly does not seek EU membership, that basically just says, hey, Putin, what do you want us to do? Uh, how do you want us to govern? Uh, because I think I think Putin, at the end of the day, is sort of a rev revanchist leader who wants to roll back the clock and expand uh, Russia's sphere of influence back to what it was really during the, the days of the Soviet Union. Um, he's he's openly lamented the fact that um, the loss of of former territory of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. Not not the Holocaust not some of the other abhorrent things that happen around the planet, but that's what Putin, um, where he really sows his grievances. And um, I think his end game is to have a, a pliant government in Kyiv where he feels like he has uh, a buffer state that prevents um, against further, further expansion of you know, free and open societies, whether that's through the EU or through NATO, he wants another Belarus on his border uh, in Ukraine. So less of an annexation and more of a puppet state. Correct. I mean, I think that, you know, he certainly um, upped the ante back in 2014 when he uh, annexed Crimea, um, which is an illegal annexation that the U.S. government does not recognize. Um, and when he, um, you know, inserted troops into um, Donetsk and Luhansk, which have Russian speaking populations. Um, but, but, you know, I, I don't know that annexation is, is, is the goal per se, as much as just a completely 
um, like I said, pliant regime in, in Kyiv that he can manipulate however he wants. All right, and I think I would speak for everyone involved here when I say that we would want the Ukrainians to win this war. So what would that look like and how can we as the United States help the Ukrainians to victory? Yeah, so I think a, a victory for Ukraine um, looks like um, removal of Russian forces from its, its sovereign territory, right? Restoring the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. Now, where that line lies will, I think, be in an ideal world negotiated diplomatically somewhere. Um, and, you know, my this is me, my Tom Antonelli's preference would be like the borders of Ukraine prior to 2014. Um, and I, but I don't know if that will be uh, ultimately achievable. Um, what can we do to support Ukraine? We can we can do a lot, frankly, of what the Biden administration has been doing. Um, find ways to impose cost on Vladimir Putin, um, Russian oligarchs, the Russian armed forces, the inner circle that are making the decisions in Moscow. Um, we principally are doing that through sanctions, um, sort of steadily cascading sanctions that are imposing more and more costs on the Russian economy. Um, and so at the same time that we wanna impose costs on Russia economically, we wanna be um, supporting um, Ukraine, both its people and it's and it's brave those those brave people who are defending the country through its military. So we want to be providing Ukraine with military equipment it needs to inflict losses on the Russian forces. Um, we want to be providing their government with sort of an economic lifeline, given that um, you know at a time of war, you, people aren't exactly keen to invest in or or trade with uh, Ukraine. We want to be providing humanitarian aid to all the. Uh, Ukrainian refugees now numbering, you know, I think it's 3.5 million last I checked, who fled to Poland, Slovakia, Romania, other countries. We want to be making sure that we're providing them with support. Um, and then we want to make sure, I think most importantly, that everything we're doing is nested within uh, the strength of uh, our European partners, uh, the NATO alliance, the European Union, um, even I think involving other countries around the world, principally through the G7. We've been getting great partnership um, on sanctions from countries in Asia, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, Singapore, to name a few. So I think that it's a combination of, of really all tools of American power, um, economic, military, diplomatic, uh, to try to um, give, give the Ukrainians the boost that they need and impose um, costs and consequences on the Kremlin. All right. Um, speaking of American attempts to influence this war, some commentators, particularly Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or former President Donald Trump, have been called useful idiots uh, by propagandizing for Putin, spreading Russian propaganda, asserting that it's American actions that started this war. Do you see public figures in the United States who parrot authoritarian propaganda, but really especially Russian and Chinese propaganda as potential challenges to American security and the ability of the U.S. government to implement policy? Uh, yes, I do see them as challenges. But frankly, what I've been more heartened and encouraged by is the strong, um, united, bipartisan support that we're seeing for you know, the inspirational leadership of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. You're, you're seeing... Um, I think a lot of unity uh, uh, among um, the broad swath of, of the American 
public. You're seeing it across most Republicans and, and Democrats in Congress. And I try not to pay attention to, to outliers, even if they have powerful megaphones like our former president does, um, because I think that, frankly, they're, they're being exposed uh, as, as sort of silly and, and not consistent with the brutal images we're seeing of the Russians who aren't really just attacking the Ukrainian military right now. They're essentially targeting and attacking Ukrainian civilians. Um, you know, what they're doing in cities like Mariupol is abhorrent and, and should in no way um, express, get any sort of comfort or quarter by any American official, be they uh, a junior congressman or woman, um, a TV commentator, or certainly not the former president. So I try not to pay attention to that. What I'm focused on is um, the bipartisan support that exists for holding Russia accountable, for expediting security aid to the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, and I, I tend to focus my efforts there and less on the debates on the political fringes. I think a lot of the, the whatever you want to call it, the alt-right or you know, right-wing populist nationalist forces, even in Europe, are being um, sort of seen as, as, as silly right now and um, kind of laid bare for, for all how wacky their bizarre conspiracy theories are. These are the same people who are saying, you know, Putin's a genius, Putin's clever. I mean, Putin's a right, you know, I think it's it's accurate to say that he is committing the acts that are consistent with a war criminal. Um, and we have to figure out ways that we can hold him accountable while at the same time getting him to stop. Um, and that's the real challenge of, of the problem that we're facing right now. And when I say we, I don't just mean the United States. I mean, the United States, our European allies and partners, and anyone really who cares about free and open societies. I mean, let's be clear what's at stake here. Um, this is the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Uh, we should not want to live in a world where a freely elected democratic government can be um, overthrown by a foreign invader um, or where, you know, might makes right just because a larger neighbor decides it wants to attempt to swallow up uh, a smaller nearby country. So moving on from specifically just the Russian involvement in Ukraine, I'd like to talk about American and Russian relations as a whole. Um, through the lens of, do you think the current tensions between the Western democracies, Russia, China, do you see this as the start of a new Cold War, or would you say that it's not the start of a new Cold War, or that we've been in a Cold War for several years now? And if you do think this is the start of a new Cold War, what sides and alliances do you think are going to take shape here? Yeah, I think that we as... Um scholars, students, foreign policy practitioners occasionally look to find these analogies like, um, like a Cold War um, or some sort of paradigm through which to, to structure our thinking. Um, it's tricky, and, and, I, and I think that the Cold War analogy certainly does not really apply in the case of, of China. Um, our economies are incredibly interlinked. Um, that said, I think that China poses a new, unique, and different type of challenge that, that policymakers must recognize and must reckon with. Um, so what do I mean by that? Um, you know, China has an alternative vision for the world that's not a vision that I think the countries that value freedom and openness share. And we have to find a way um, to impose costs on them when they're undermining democracies around the world, um, while at the same time, finding ways where we can you know, prevent the start of 
uh, an inadvertent hot war, certainly, but also you know, potentially preserve areas of cooperation around climate change uh, or nuclear nonproliferation or other challenges. Um, I'm in, in no way naive to the challenge, challenges that China pose, but I just think that the, the Cold War analogy um, only goes so far. What I, what I do think we're, we're, we are starting to see emerge is um, a, an alliance, not an alliance, but a common bond among those countries that value um, democracy, that value the rights of the individual, that prize you know, freedom and openness um, and individual expression. Um, I think you're seeing countries like, like Russia and China um, even Iran use the tool, the new digital tools that exist in our in our cell phones and in um, the types of digital technology that we all rely on every day uh, to to suppress, to monitor, to to surveil their people in a way that's that's fundamentally um, challenging and undemocratic. And I think that we that's that's something that I think we should watch for as we go forward: is how are societies using technology? Are they using it in a way that allows for economic growth and innovation and entrepreneurship? Um, and, and promoting freedom and openness um, and new ways of doing business and commerce, or are they using them as tools uh, to target um, independent um, freedom, political voices to, to prevent a free press, to target political opposition? And so I, that's something I, I, I'm trying to, to watch more about because I think it's going to govern a lot about uh, the future of international relations. Thank you for that answer. Um, I'm going to name a couple countries and I would like your impression just simple competitor or enemy or something else. Uh, those countries are gonna be Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea. And then if you feel like you wanna mention any others, feel free to do so. And if you need me to go back over that list, cause I know I just rattled off. Uh, yeah, maybe if we can just take, go through them one at a time, I'm, I'm happy to offer, you know, quick reflections on, on each. Sounds good. How about uh, Russia? Yeah. So when it comes to Russia, I mean, look, as a as a country, um, there there's a, a lot to admire about the Russian people and their contribution to uh, culture, the arts, history. However, um, in Russia right now, you have a, a leader in Vladimir Putin um, who is really trying to, to roll back the clock and behaving uh, in, in brutal, abhorrent ways. Um, and it's really sad for the Russian people. I think that um, he is using all the tools available to him to uh, divide the United States from within, to divide the United States from Europe. Um, and his, his goal is to sort of um, uh, separate the, the NATO alliance. Ironically, what he's done by invading Ukraine is mobilize the, the NATO alliance in a, in a more powerful way um, than I've certainly, that I've arguably seen even in my lifetime. Um, so I, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about Russia. I consider the way in which Putin governs to, um, you know, really be like he like his, his history and his own background is, you know, he's a KGB guy who's trying to use underhanded tools um, to, to undermine um, people who value free and open societies. And what about China? Uh, I think China is a country that had, has undergone a remarkable period of economic growth. Uh, we saw, we talked earlier about the, the system the United States created after World War II, um, and arguably, you know, China has benefited tremendously from that system. Uh, the problem is they have now that they've enjoyed some of those benefits, 
they're increasingly trying to find ways um, to take advantage of those rules in a way that only allows them to benefit and they're not playing on a level playing field. Um, I, I think that the, the Chinese Communist Party um, has a decision to make about, you know, as China increases its economic power, what role it wants to play in the world. And I think it's, I'm increasingly concerned that it's a role that is completely antithetical to U.S. interests. Um, what they're doing in, in Xinjiang is abhorrent. Um, I'm concerned about uh, the ways in which Chinese leaders speak about um, the future of uh, Taiwan, uh, which is, you know, a, a democracy, a capitalist um, success story, really, in international affairs. I'm concerned about uh, the way China has behaved towards its neighbors, including India, where they recently fought uh, an extended skirmish um, along their border. I'm concerned about Chinese uh, treatment of Tibetan minorities as well. Um, I think that that China um, does not value human rights the same way that we as the United States do. And that's going to be a source of, of tension going forward. Um, and, you know, we really do have to get this the China challenge right. Um, the best way we can do that is as the United States rising to the challenges of the 21st century, showing that our democracy can work, showing that um, unlike the Chinese model right now that, uh, you know, is, is frankly struggling with, with certain challenges of their own, we, the United States, can help um, work with our allies and partners to, to structure a 21st century security environment where countries can take advantage um, of, of trading with one another if they agree to a certain set of, set of rules. Um, and I think that the China challenge will, will remain first and foremost on our agenda um, well beyond, I think, this, this current situation with Russia and Ukraine. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, in the interest of time, do you mind if we skip the remaining countries and move on to one final question I wanted to ask? I know you're a busy man. No problem. Happy to, to wrap up with a final question. So my final question for you today is what major challenges and threats to American power and security will the United States face in the 2020s and 2030s? I think we've talked about a, a, quite a few of them here. I think we have to figure out how we deal um, particularly with um, China and Russia. Um, you know, China, they, they've, they've built up uh, military features on islands in the South China Sea. Um, they're, they're steadily uh, seeking more and more influence, uh, I think, through their Belt and Road Initiative in, in Africa, in South America. Um, and while that, that's fine, they're, in, they're happy to have their, their own foreign policy, that can't um, be seen as something that solely benefits China. And that can't be seen as something that undermines uh, the sovereignty of those states who enter into deals with, with China. Um, I think that, that countries are starting to realize that for themselves, but the way in which China operates um, is, is, uh, is sophisticated and um, we would do our best to come up with an alternative uh, method of engaging with countries around the world um, based upon you know, our ideals, our values, the best standards of international um, uh, respect for international standards and norms. So I think, I think China will, will be on the, the radar of U.S. policymakers for uh, decades to come. I also think that um, Russia poses a particular challenge right now. Um, I'm very concerned that as, as, as Putin suffers losses on the battlefield, he may be inclined to use ever more brutal tactics in Ukraine, including chemical weapons or even 
God forbid, uh, a smaller tactical nuke, which is still the use of a nuke, which would still, you know, really rattle um, rattle the cages of the rest of the world and could potentially create an arms race. That's something we want to avoid. Um, and, you know, he's, he's really um, cut off any other uh, opposition voices in Russia in such a way that he's likely to be in power for as long as he's alive and may even appoint his successor. So we, we have to find a way of dealing with him, um, like I said, through a combination of imposing costs and supporting um, our allies and partners in Europe to make sure that um, he understands where, what we are willing to tolerate, what we are willing to fight for, and that we deter him from any future aggressive actions. Um, so those would be the two that I mentioned. I mean, I, I, we haven't even really talked about some of the other challenges associated with um, a changing climate um, or with uh, just general nuclear nonproliferation in the context of particularly like what it would mean um, in the case of Iran or North Korea. Uh, but those are challenges that I worry about. There's still a threat posed um, to the United States by um, international uh, or transnational terrorist groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda. And I think we, we need to keep our eye on the ball um, on those groups as well. So um, I'll wrap it up there, but it's been really great talking with you. You asked really thoughtful questions and uh, I hope this is useful uh, to you and the rest of the Notre Dame community. Thank you, Tom, for coming here. Like I said, I know you're a very busy man. You have a lot on your plate, especially in times like these. Being in national security is probably not the easiest job. So it really does mean a lot to both me and the members of the Notre Dame community that are going to be listening to this, that you're willing to take time out of your day for this. And speaking of the Notre Dame community, I would also like to thank our audience and I'd also like to thank Anika Johnson, who helped set up this meeting and helped uh, edit this podcast. And overall, go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.